That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hurricane Florence was a weird storm. Most storms bounce off the coast and head back to sea. But when Florence arrived in mid-September, it just kind of parked itself over Wilmington, North Carolina, and stayed there for days. The rain will barely let up here on this coast for another 24 hours. Catastrophic flooding with more than three feet of rain. Rivers are rising today throughout North Carolina as all this rain from Florence rushes downstream. The death toll from this storm... Business insider's Dan Brown arrived in Wilmington the day after landfall. Uh, it looks like that street light is kind of, the street lights are working now. Um, and I see a few light poles on, but uh, pretty much all the businesses are dark. Um, you know, some are boarded up. The rain was drenching. The wind was picking up. All the businesses around him were closed, except for one beacon in the dark. The only lights on are this Waffle House. Dan made his way past the line of people waiting for a table. It's about 15 people standing outside. And headed inside. The Waffle House inside is packed. It's an oasis. I'm smelling eggs, uh, but it's, you know, there's a little, there's a little, uh, little hint of syrup as well, I think. Um, so that's kind of what I'm smelling. Maybe a little coffee, too. I can't tell, but... Families are jammed into booths, crowded around tables. Um, You know, there's about, I'd say, maybe a dozen uh, line workers and cooks and chefs behind the counter. They're all running around, cooking and frying and everything. Um, All this is literally news during the storm. One restaurant was still serving up hot food today as the storm is nearly upon them. Arby's? Nope. Hooters? No wings today. Thursday's saving grace, the Waffle House. But this is not a local story of a lone Waffle House braving a storm. The company activated a storm center to monitor Florence, which is, of course, now a Category 2 hurricane. And that's because Waffle Houses are known for staying open through disasters. Newscasters went live to Waffle House headquarters like it was their weather center. To come back, the Waffle House spokesman, Pat Warner, joins us. What what, what are you hearing right now? What does your index tell you? Well, right now, Neil, uh, we had about 230 restaurants in the storm's path. We have 17 closed right now. And it's not just the news using Waffle Houses to gauge a storm. Here's something we hadn't really heard of before, the Waffle House Index. It's an actual thing. Yeah, FEMA uses it to track storm conditions. If a Waffle House restaurant in one area is closed, then authorities know the conditions there are especially bad. So I wanted to know, what's the deal with Waffle Houses and hurricanes? From Business Insider and Stitcher, this is Household Name. Brand new 
brands you can trust. Brands you know, stories you don't. I'm Dan Bobkoff. Today, the Waffle House Index. For years, FEMA has tracked Waffle House closures to help it determine where to send disaster aid. How did this old-fashioned 24-hour breakfast joint become so good at recovering from disasters? Why does it have a storm center at its headquarters? And later on, in our customer service segment, we'll investigate, are there really 57 varieties of Heinz? Stay with us. Part of what makes all this so surprising is that a Waffle House does not look like the kind of place that could coordinate a sophisticated disaster response. It's a little shoebox of a restaurant. It has 40 seats top. The grill is out front, and we have a high bar where folks can sit there and and see their food cooked. And it's really a, a small gathering place for the community. Pat Warner is the Waffle House PR guy the news stations called during Florence. Even though we have 2,000 restaurants, each one has its own unique personality, and really they fit into whatever community that they are serving. That's kind of the role we we have played throughout our, our history going back to 1955. Waffle House is a distinctly Southern American institution. Red bricks, yellow sign, a logo that looks like it's made of Scrabble tiles. But we're a 24-hour restaurant. We've been 24 hours from the start. So Waffle House is different things to different people at different times of day. Lunchtime waffles after Little League, 2 a.m. drunk hash browns for college students, political talk over dinner. Its biggest sales day is Christmas. It's become like a microcosm of American culture, where you might see celebrities. This is the best photo. It's Kim, Kanye, John, and Chrissy, all decked out in their formal gear, and they're chilling inside yeah. of a Waffle House. Like two, three. Births. And delivered his baby girl in the front seat of the car. Then they drove to this Waffle House parking lot to wait for paramedics. Shootings. This weekend's mass shooting at a Tennessee Waffle House. Bomb threats. The deputies are investigating two bomb threats that happened this morning at a Waffle House on Pinona Avenue in Macon. And violent weather. Waffle House started near Atlanta and then expanded outward from there, so most of its restaurants are in the southeast. So if there's a hurricane in the Atlantic, it's probably going to hit a Waffle House. And then after the storm, Waffle House is the place you go. I get their little uh, breakfast steak, scrambled eggs, and hash browns covered and smothered. Sounds pretty good. This is Craig Fugate. It's good food, it's hot, it's fast. There's nothing pretentious about a Waffle House. Craig has spent his whole career responding to disasters, many of them big storms in Florida. He ran emergency management for the state and then became the head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, under President Obama. Craig has never worked for Waffle House. He doesn't even go to them that often. But for years now, when there's a storm, people tell him how the local restaurant is doing. Because it became a shorthand, I guess because it was associated with me, I would get a lot of feedback during storms about people telling me the status of their Waffle Houses. That's because of something that happened in 2004. We were hit by four hurricanes, and the first of which was Hurricane Charlie, which hit in August. Back then, Craig was in charge of Florida's Emergency Management Division. And Hurricane Charlie was a real emergency, one of the strongest storms ever to hit the U.S., 150-mile-per-hour winds at times. And it was part of Craig's job to drive around the disaster zone and assess how bad things were. 
As he was driving, he kept seeing streaks of green in the ground. You kind of wonder where all the oranges go. And you started realizing that these green streaks you were seeing, these long streaks of green were actually all the green oranges that were up and down these rows. The oranges were like shrapnel. One house had been absolutely pummeled by flying fruit, every window blown out. After lots of moments like that, Craig and his crew retired. They'd been eating MREs, meals ready to eat, like they use in space shuttles or a battlefield. And we got on the interstate. We actually had to turn south and drive south to find something open. It was probably about 5 o'clock in the morning just to get something to eat because we were going to be gone all day and had no idea if we'd ever get to, you know, a chance to grab a bite. And as we went south, we found the Waffle House that was open. And it's in large part because of this very breakfast that we now pay so much attention to Waffle Houses and disasters. Craig went in, and the first thing that seemed a little off was the menu. It was photocopied. What's this? Well, you know, we lost power. We got power back, but we lost everything in the freezer. So all we have is what's on this menu. Craig was there with a guy named Tad from the National Guard and Ben, a meteorologist. I think Tad was trying to order cheese grits, and cheese grits actually became grits with a slab of uh, American cheese thrown on top of it. It wasn't exactly what he fondly remembered as cheese grits, but... That doesn't sound good. It was what they had, you know? Yeah, in a disaster, you can't be uh, too choosy about stuff. The fact that we were eating a hot meal, sitting down with a roof over our head, was actually a, a vast improvement than what most people were facing that next day. So the next day, they went to a different Waffle House. And same deal, mimograph menu. But the guy cooking looked familiar. Oh, yeah, it was the same guy. Yeah, it was the same cook. Same as the first restaurant. He was driving a beat-up car, but he had the back of it a bumper sticker said, worked. And I'm like, work? And it's like the Waffle House Emergency Response Team. I thought it was a joke. It's at this point that Craig and his team realize Waffle House is different. This is a restaurant that really, really cares about staying open, or at least reopening as soon as possible after a disaster. The next day, he and his team had to give a presentation about how Florida was recovering. At the last minute, they threw in a PowerPoint slide about the status of the Waffle Houses. All of this was just kind of based upon observations, uh, kind of a little you know, bit of a humor in a slide deck, and a realization that, you know, this is a useful tool. And this right here is the moment the so-called Waffle House Index was born. If the Waffle House is closed, it's red. If the Waffle House is open with a limited menu, it's yellow. And if the Waffle House is open, it's got a full menu, it's green. Here's the thing about Waffle Houses. There are a lot of them. So you can be pretty sure there'll be one in a storm's path. And they're often on highway off-ramps. And so the kind of shorthand was if you get there and the Waffle House is open, it's got a full menu, keep going, it's not that bad. If you got there and the Waffle House is, is on a limited menu, we probably got power outages and a lot of impacts to the population. If you get there and the storm's closed close to Waffle House and they're not open, that's a pretty bad area. And that's where you need to focus your search and rescue operations, your security missions, and the immediate uh, life safety type activities. It was kind of an informal shorthand. It may have been informal. It may have been unconventional. But Craig and his team started using the index almost immediately in 2004. We got hit by Francis. That was basically 22 days after Charlie made landfall. And then 11 days after Francis made landfall, we had Ivan hit the Pensacola region, the Panhandle. And then we had Gene hit back on the uh, southeast coast. And this is kind of how the index started getting used. He had to give a lot of presentations that year. 
So the team started calling them Waffle House briefings. In fact, when I was going through my uh, vetting process with the White House, they had heard about the Waffle House briefings. President Obama had just taken office. After Craig's success in Florida, Obama picked him to head up FEMA. So they called me up and they said, hey, we need to know what your arrangement is with uh, Waffle House. Are you on retainer or, you know, what kind of compensation? Do you have an agreement with them? There was no relationship. He never even talked to Waffle House. Um, What are you talking about? By the time of his Senate confirmation hearing, it was all sorted out. Good morning. Uh, The hearing will now come to order. Uh, Today, uh, our committee will consider the nomination of W. Craig Fugate to be an administrator. He has a homespun Florida way of describing uh, how he handles his professional duties. He calls it the Waffle House test. Usually around here, waffling means something else. (laughs) And let let me say in your opening statement, you did not waffle. (laughs) That's Senate humor for you from Bill Nelson and Joe Lieberman. So when I got to FEMA, I didn't start out with the Waffle House Index. It kind of followed me. He'd get questions about it. Newspapers wrote the occasional article. But uh, it came back up again in Joplin. In 2011 when a multiple vortex tornado barreled through the Missouri city. The damage was widespread. Almost 200 people died. Right after, Craig went in to assess the damage. He noticed the Starbucks was closed, but next door, the Waffle House was humming. It was during his time running FEMA that Craig finally heard from Waffle House directly. And I never met with him, never communicated with him, other than frequenting restaurants during disaster response. And they brought their president up, their chief attorney, their CFO. And I thought, man, I must, you know, I hope they're not mad at me. And they came in and they were just, they just wanted to meet with me and, and, and uh, say how much they appreciated that, you know, we had, we had used them as their index and all that stuff. And I said, you know, how do you guys do this? I mean, what kind of, because I'm, you know, here I am a fan of thinking, well, what kind of command post do you have? You know, you have an EOC. How do you do all this stuff? And they looked at me and said, no, we don't do any of that stuff. How do they do all this stuff? How do they rush into storm zones and get their restaurants up and running so fast? That's what I asked Pat Warner, the Waffle House PR guy. I've been with Waffle House for 19 years, and I'm part of our storm response team. And he told me it started after Hurricane Hugo back in 1989. That's really where we saw we had to take it to a level where we're preparing more. In the past, it was more of a local thing. The local operator dealt with it. Hugo covered an unusually large area, which meant it made a bigger dent in Waffle House's operations. During the storm, Waffle House headquarters apparently called up a restaurant in the path of Hugo. It was hard to get through. After a lot of trying, they got one landline connection to work, so they just kept the call going the whole storm. After that, Waffle House got serious about storm response. We have uh, several different what we call jump teams. The, the, the main jump team for us jump teams. is a group of These are the people who rush to the scene of a storm. It's a mix of employees from the area plus top officials from Atlanta. Typically, restaurant managers or district managers Sometimes we'll take in some uh, associates, some cooks, uh, and they they will go in to a market right after a storm. Waffle House has detailed checklists and plans. They know how to airlift people and supplies, and they bring in generators and food as fast as possible. It really is kind of like a command center at headquarters. Hey, Sheriff, how's it going? Even days or weeks after a storm, 
you might find Pat talking to a local official, like he did in the middle of our interview. That was actually the sheriff of Dowdy County in Georgia. We were checking on a curfew. He was calling me back to tell me they're lifting the curfew. So I, I had to take that call. Sorry. <laughs> I asked him why Waffle House bothers with all this. They could just stay closed a little longer, like the other businesses. Because uh, our folks live in that community. But I think it, it's made from a business decision. And a lot of companies have less just waited out. And it's a lot easier to you know get the insurance check, then come in later and, and open up. For us, we take the other other way that we are a private company and we think that we need to open up quickly for for the customers and our associates and so we will put the resources in place. I've thought about this a lot and I don't think that's just corporate BS. There are reasons why Waffle House is like this. It really does seem true that they care about their communities and workers. They don't have shareholders to worry about. And there are practical reasons. They actually own all these restaurants. They're not franchises like most fast food businesses. They have the power to decide when and how to reopen. And they like doing it. There's adrenaline here. The staff want to be on these jump teams. Plus, Waffle House never advertises their storm response. They don't really advertise at all. It was really newspapers and TV that ran with the idea. To the point where Waffle House now expects the media to call when there's a storm. So how does all this work in practice? In a moment, we go back into the storm to find out. Stay with us. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back. It's September 10th. Waffle House officials are monitoring Hurricane Florence four days before it makes landfall. Well, we've activated the storm center here at our headquarters in Norcross, Georgia, on Monday, and we we have manned it ever since to help monitor the storm. Pat Warner and a bunch of other high-ranking Waffle House officials are crowded around a long conference table at headquarters, making phone calls, eyes glued on four computer monitors— one showing a live security camera feed from the Wilmington Waffle House. One, we know the restaurant has power if, if the cameras are working, but two, we can also see how busy they are. Sometimes we can see, is there any damage to the restaurant? So that's up on one screen. Uh, the middle screen typically has... Another monitor has a color-coded map showing all the restaurants in the path uh, of the storm. Obviously, red, they're closed. We can show which ones were on generator. And so that kind of gives us an overall look at the at the area as the storm's coming on. We have a service that shows the storm track and a live weather radar, so we'll have that up. 
The forecast has just come in, and the war room team is getting an update. The two o'clock forecast just came out, so that's a big, big excitement. Yeah, we're waiting for the five. That's our big one. The five o'clock forecast. What are they saying? It looked like it, it turned some more in the two o'clock. We're reaching out to different uh, management teams in different states to coordinate how many people they have. They're packing their bags. They're they're basically waiting to get the call. Uh, but we go ahead and identify who will be in that first wave of jump teams. We reached out to our management team in Virginia, and they started assembling their team members that would be ready to go in, uh, basically within about a 24-hour notice. The jump teams are comprised of company staff who volunteer. They charter planes across the region and organize carpools. They arrange for hotel rooms for every jump team member. So they were ready to roll in as soon as the storm came through. Absolutely brutality in North Carolina. There's no other word. A sobering flash flood emergency over almost the entire eastern half of that state. Then when Florence came in, it looks like we had 20 restaurants initially that were closed uh, because of power issues. Pat's actually reporting all this directly to FEMA. They have an online meeting room now where private companies can report how things are going, whether they're open, if they can get supplies delivered. It's something Craig Fugate set up, inspired by how Waffle House and other businesses responded to storms. And through it all, the Waffle House war room isn't all serious. We have a bell in the storm center. When someone on the team says something funny, they ring it. Uh, Somebody will throw out a movie line or something like that to kind of ease the tension. Like just today, we were quoting Airplane, uh, the movie. It's a bad week to give up sniffing glue. It's a wrong week to quit sniffing glue. And so we rang the bell. Seinfeld quotes, it's easy to take the reservation. You know how to take the reservation. You just don't know how to hold the reservation. But you have to have the car. That happens a lot where we show up and the cars aren't ready. That's a quote that gets thrown around a lot when, when we sh- think we have cars in a certain place and, and our folks show up and, and they're not there. On the ground in North Carolina, the storm is wild. The Monkey Junction store in Wilmington is on generator power, thanks to a Waffle House employee named Lindsay Westcott and the jump team she's overseeing. Her day job is running training and culture at Waffle so House. You, uh, but this day, she's doing a little of everything. Too, I'm helping cooking. We have something called expediting, waiting on tables. Right now, I'm making coffee so we can get everybody some coffee. At this moment, the Waffle House is barely above red on Craig Fugate's index. The only thing they've served all morning is ham sandwiches. But that's about to change. Um, we're about to go to the um, limited menu. So we opened up uh, the first hour to try to get our bearings, and we're making all the prep right now. So we have about eight people in the back making all the prep so that we can go to the limited menus. I think we're going to in the next five minutes. The people working at the registers are slammed. The line is out the door. These are hungry people. We heard that um, this was the only place open to eat, and so we've been eating, like, crackers and granola bars the past couple days, so it'll be good to have a nice meal. You know, like, get that, uh, it's an omelet with all kinds of vegetables in it, also with hot sauce. I really want some coffee. They had good coffee. Uh, yeah, coffee. Yeah, coffee. Yeah, yeah. That's, he just he just said the key word. Thank you so much. Man. Yeah. God bless you. God yeah, bless you. take care. By this point, the restaurant is at yellow on the index. We're at yellow. We're, and we're looking to go to a green soon. Um, once we get a few more product items this weekend, then we should be able to go to green soon. Which means 
they'll be able to serve just about anything you'd want. We don't have pancakes. We don't have just waffles. Yeah, just waffles. But um, yeah, no. Um, but you know, and at this moment, at another Waffle House in the area, the company's CEO has arrived, Walt Amer. But Pat says you might not even notice because all of our name tags have first names, so they just they just know him as Walt. They don't realize he's the CEO, uh, and he's not coming in. You know, with a fanfare and an entourage, he he comes in by himself. For us, that's natural. That's just how it is. Uh, part of our, we call our homegrown management. A few weeks later, the CEO would take out trash in Florida after Hurricane Michael. What we call the uh, dumpster dance where he was trying to pack down the garbage. When Craig Fugate got to FEMA, he tried looking at other brands in other regions. He noticed there were a whole lot of Dunkin' Donuts, or Dunkins as I guess we're calling them now. But they weren't so great at reopening after storms. So for now, the Waffle House Index is the one that counts. And when the next hurricane hits, Pat and his team will activate the storm center, and the jump teams will jump, and the people will get their waffles. But not pancakes. Sir, this is a Waffle House. Coming up... Does Heinz really have 57 varieties? Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Thank you for calling customer service, where we answer all your burning questions about brands. This call may be recorded for podcast purposes. Hi, Household Name Customer Service. Can I have your name, please? Yes, uh, my own Sout. And you have a question for us. What is your question? I do. So I have long been a fan of condiments, and one of the ones that I see the most and everywhere is ketchup, usually and only Heinz ketchup. And I've noticed that there's a Heinz 57. The number 57 has always been a question for me. What is the 57 in Heinz 57? I'm just wondering, what does it mean to be a fan of condiments? Oh, man. What does it mean to be a fan of condiments? I put condiments on everything. To me, a salad, sandwich, pizza, whatever isn't complete unless I can dip it in something. So while I don't necessarily dip my pizza in ketchup, I do dip ketchup or pretty much anything in ketchup. Well, I think I have someone in our headquarters here who can answer your question. If you could just hold on the line, please. Yes, okay. Hey, Mayan. Hi. 
I have found someone who I think can answer your question. It's our producer, Anna Mazarakis. Hello. Hi, Anna. So first of all, let me say that you came to the right person, Dan. Before I really started doing any research into this, I took a quiz online, like most good millennials, to see how much I know about Heinz history. And my guesses actually got me a 10 out of 10. Apparently, I'm a Heinz know-it-all. That's what the results said. And I should relish my knowledge and impress my friends. You just did that to make me happy, right? (laughs) (laughs) You love the puns. I can't catch up with you. (laughs) But after recovering from that ego boost, I actually started to do some research into your question. And so like any good researcher, after doing the quiz, I turned to Google and found a reliable source. It's called the Heinz History Center. Surely the Ketchup Museum can help me out with your question. But then I watched the news. And you know, guys, it's funny. People who come from out of town mm-hmm. think it's the Ketchup Museum. Right. Yeah. And they think it's going to the Ketchup <laughs> Museum. No. So it turns out the Heinz History Center is actually the Senator John Heinz History Center. But the senator was also the great-grandson of the founder of the H.J. Heinz Company, Henry John Heinz. So there's ketchup in his blood, and there's a ketchup exhibit in his museum. I called the exhibit's curator, Emily Ruby, and she told me that I wasn't the only one to get that confused. We actually had Ed Sheeran come here when he was in town because he's always loved Heinz. Um, He has a Heinz label tattoo on his arm. The Ketchup Museum in Pittsburgh. I'm really, really excited about it. And so I think he was a little disappointed because I think he thought the whole building was dedicated to Heinz and Heinz ketchup. So he went through the whole exhibit and even posted a video on Instagram playing this song over clips of him looking at various bottles of ketchup. (laughs) What must they think of us? We must really like ketchup. He's just like you. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, that was a lot of lead up to just say that the real answer to your question is that the 57 on Heinz ketchup bottles means, drumroll, nothing. Nothing. How is it nothing? (laughs) Well, it means nothing. But of course, there's a story behind it. And there are a lot of people who want to guess that it means something. And it actually did start to mean something over time. But let's start with a story about Henry John Hines. His first food company went into bankruptcy in 1875. But his second food company, the nearly identical H.J. Hines Company, was fairly successful just a few years later. Heinz wanted to keep it that way, so he's thinking about marketing plans for all of his different products. The story that is commonly told is that he's riding an elevated train uh, in New York City. There's a date of 1892. We think it's probably closer to 1896. Uh, And he sees this uh, trolley advertisement for 21 varieties of shoes, and he likes this idea of a number. There are a lot of guesses for why he chose the number 57. Some people say five was his lucky number. And seven was his wife's, so he just put them together. Maybe the seven had religious connotations, or maybe he just liked the way the 57 looked or sounded. I had a guy come up to me at a talk and say that he knew, because his grandfather was friends with Heinz, that it was because the streets in Pittsburgh at the time ended at 56, going up the river, the Allegheny River where he lived. So there's all kinds of theories out there. Wait, so I just want to make this very clear. So he just made up 57 varieties has no relation to reality at all? Just out of thin air. Oh my gosh. The mystique becomes more important (laughs) than the actual meaning. That's Emily's colleague at the History Center, Brian Butko. So as I said, 57 means nothing. But maybe it means everything. Or 
almost everything because the one thing the 57 definitely does not mean is the actual number of varieties or products the company offered at the time. When Heinz came up with the number 57, he already had more than 60 products on his shelf. Wait, what? The sound and look of it meant more to him than the The actual number. (laughs) And that's the difference between a company that thinks they're bragging by saying, oh, we have 157, and an innovator who sees the value in the sound and look of something easily graspable. And the number 57 has stuck around even as that number of Heinz varieties has reached into the hundreds and thousands. So one of the things that I think is funny, though, is like you, Mayan, when I think of Heinz today, I only think of ketchup. It's my go-to for hot dogs and hamburgers. And I know that there are other products, Mm -hmm. too. But I don't really think about what those products are because the only thing that I consume is ketchup. So in diving into the 57 varieties, I was intrigued to find out what the other 56 varieties allegedly are. Thankfully, I found this one ad from 1924. It shows a map of the world with lines showing where the 57 varieties originated. And it includes a list of the 57 varieties in a teeny tiny font very small. I had to zoom in on it. Wait, so he made up 57, but then they started actually making lists of 57 products to fit into his, like, fake number? I guess they chose their favorites of the products that they had to put onto this advertisement. But yeah, that list is just a random list. You really can't trust anyone, can you? (laughs) Anyway, you might be surprised to hear that tomato ketchup is listed as number 48 on the list, with prepared mustard right behind it at 49. Number one on the list is baked beans with pork and tomato sauce. Number 57 is tarragon vinegar. The rest of the products are varieties of preserves and jellies and pickles and gherkins and vinegars and soups and pastas. I've never seen most of these products at the supermarket I go to in New York. In the exhibit, some of the most popular products are the ones that uh, we don't have here in the United States but are sold in Europe. Yeah, I mean, when I go visit family in England, I'm always amazed at just how many Heinz products there are on the shelves in England that don't exist in the U.S. And I think the weirdest one to me is salad cream, which (laughs) looks like somebody combined salad dressing with mayonnaise, which I think it looks that way because that is what it is. Uh, Maybe that's just not popular here in the U.S. Another thing that people love to see at this exhibit, of course, is the horseradish, the Heinz horseradish which was the first product that Henry John Hines ever made from his family's land in Sharpsburg, Pennsylvania. He was just eight years old, and he already knew how to market the product. He put it in a clear jar so customers could see that he had the whitest and purest roots in his horseradish. This was innovative at the time. His marketing schemes only got better from there, and most of them after 1896, that year that he was on that trolley in New York, included the number 57. The first electronic sign in New York was a 43-foot, six-story-tall pickle where the Flatiron Building is now, (laughs) with 57 varieties written underneath. Aren't you glad you called customer service, Mayan? (laughs) I am so happy I called customer service because the idea of a six-story-tall pickle is potentially my dream. Like, ketchup is fine, but pickles are, like, 20 steps above that. Literally. (laughs) Or six stories above that. (laughs) Literally, yes. He also put an ad with a large 57 on an Atlantic City pier. He put these massive cement 57s on hillsides close to railroad lines. I like the story behind the giant concrete letters that um, he was okay if 
people didn't in the community didn't like it because then he would turn that to an opportunity and rush in and apologize and make up for it and become a hero to the community. Right. <laughs> Whereas, again, a typical company would either bend and go away embarrassed or that fight it. But he knew quite well that everything is an opportunity to promote your business. And so if the mm-hmm. concrete letters stay, great. If they complain about them, that's just as well. Yeah. So it wasn't just on the products. It was all over the advertising, all over the bottling. And his salesman would use that pitch, too, when they would go out the 57 varieties of good things, you know, that type of thing. All of that effective advertising and branding led the 57 varieties to become ingrained in culture and give it an even greater meaning. So it's kind of like what you said before, Dan. 57 kind of means everything. Like... You might get corrected if you're new at calling out numbers in bingo, of all things, and you just say the number 57. 57. Or if you're starring in the movie The Manchurian Candidate and need to think of how many people do you accuse of being a communist, you might look at the Heinz ketchup bottle you're pouring onto your food and have a brainwave in the next scene. Or if you want to write a song about your love of cheeseburgers like Jimmy Buffett in Cheeseburgers in Paradise. There are so many ways that Heinz 57 has pushed its way into our lives. I just learned one recently. I didn't realize that mutts were called 57 varieties or (laughs) Heinz dogs. Hmm. Have you heard that? No. Yeah, I just learned this. So that was a new one I just learned. Please do not call dogs. Heinz dogs, it's just a little too close to hot dogs. (laughs) The list goes on and on and on and on. Why do you think that number, this random number that he came up with, why do you think that has actually become a part of our culture? Well, I think it definitely helps that it's a very simple number and a very simple concept. Whether its meaning is real or not, it's an easy and straightforward advertising campaign. And it was at a time when there wasn't the onslaught of advertising. Now we all run screaming from advertising that's everything from the floor of a supermarket to the ice of a hockey rink, you know, electronic billboards. But at the time, his advertising was innovative. So even if it was everywhere, it never pushed the point where people had too much of it. And then it's carried on into our modern, postmodern world where uh, things like that, they grow beyond their original meaning. That was Emily Ruby and Brian Butko from the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh. They're working on a book about Heinz together that they're hoping to peg to the company's 150th anniversary next year. Shouldn't it be the 157th anniversary? <laughs> Good one. <laughs> All right. So, Mayan, are you satisfied with the service you received today? I am. And part of me actually wishes that I knew that the Heinz brand was so much more than ketchup before I asked this question because the the number itself is like kind of insignificant, but all of the different things that they made is so much more interesting to me um, in terms of like all the stuff that like they did product development wise. Like, I don't know. I am realizing that part of the reason why I'm so obsessed with condiments was something I should have said in the first question, which is why I'm like hedging right now, which is that my parents ran a condiment business when I was a kid so I have condiments also in my blood 
the way that we talked about it earlier. <laughs> so I was one of their product testers when I was a kid, and I liked all of the pickled stuff the best. So, <laughs> what yeah. a dream to be a product I'm, tester. Well, thank you for calling customer service. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for this illuminating answer. And if you have another question in the future, don't hesitate to give us a call at 7313brands, or you can email us at householdname at businessinsider.com. And hey, you know the drill. Don't forget to leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. Five stars would be nice. Really helps new listeners find the show. Household Name is produced by Amy Padula, Sarah Wyman, Anna Mazarakis, and me. Our editor is Gianna Palmer. We had help from Kevin Riley, Dan Brown, and Kathleen Quillian. Sound design and original music by Casey Holford and John Delore. The executive producers are Chris Bannon, Laura Mayer, Jenny Radelet, and me. Household Name is a production of Insider Audio. Stitcher.